Hello, this is Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio. On the web at truthjihad.com, where you can subscribe by way of the Patreon button or leave a tip in the PayPal jar. I'm playing today my interview with Senator Mike Gravel from five years ago, 2016. Senator Gravel just passed away last Saturday, which was uh, June 26, 2021. He was one of my favorite radio guests, and I was pleased to get to know him and his wife in Tehran at the New Horizon Hollywoodism Conference in 2013. The uh, obituaries and articles marking the passing of Senator Gravel in the New York Times, Democracy Now!, and elsewhere failed to mention Mike Gravel's brave work on behalf of the 9-11 Truth Movement, which he was a part of beginning as early as 2004. So why won't they tell you that? Well, they're trying to erase history. We're living in an Orwellian world beyond our most paranoid imagination. So in the service of reestablishing the history that they're trying to erase, I'm going to play this interview in which Mike Gravel lays it on the line and calls it the way he sees it. I wish people like Amy Goodman and the so-called journalists at the New York Times would wake up and pay attention and tell us the truth about what Mike Gravel and so many other brave people have said and thought. Truth Jihad Radio, the all-out struggle for truth, disguised as a radio show. I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing you the best guests I can find, telling the most important truths that are boxed out of the corporate-controlled mainstream. Well, today we're looking at a key issue that's been uh, on and off of our, our radio shows here, popping up consistently over the past couple of years, and that's the 28 pages that apparently implicate some Saudis and maybe some other folks as well in the U.S. and other perhaps foreign governments in some implications in 9-11, some kind of connection to 9-11. It may not be the obvious one of supporting the 9-11 hijackers, given that we are pretty certain that there weren't any hijackers, but uh, this could blow the whole thing wide open. And it looks like we're having we're making huge progress in the past week. We have a new House Resolution 779 and here to talk about it is Senator Mike Gravel. Resolution 779 looks back to Senator Gravel's brave and historic stand uh, in reading the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record, and it essentially says that this is what we're going to do with the 28 pages. So this is uh, historic history, maybe sort of repeating itself. <laughs> Let's talk about it with Senator Mike Gravel. Welcome, Senator. How are you? Happy to be with you. Yeah, great to be to be back with you. We we had a, a wonderful time in Tehran a couple of years ago. I never forget uh, that spending time with you and your wife. And well, it was uh, uh that was my it was uh, yeah that was my first trip to Tehran as well. So yeah, it was it was mine, and we enjoyed it very much. We found it very edifying, and of course, the tragedy of American foreign policy towards Tehran is something we've been living with ever since and even before. You know, sanctioning them uh, was clearly illegal. Uh, they weren't doing anything that they weren't authorized to do under the, the Nuclear Proliferation Act. Uh, but the, here again, American imperialism does not need uh, a reason to mete out injustice. All they got to do is want to do it, and they do. Indeed. I think Iran's real crime is wanting to be independent and opposing uh, Israeli policies. Well, well let's, let's move on to the 28 pages. Uh, that's uh, a, a very, very interesting issue for those of us who've been pushing to get uh, a real investigation into the crimes of 9-11. And it looks like a lot of progress has been made. And I was actually surprised. Well, yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. Uh, first off, uh, they've got a new resolution, and they've got a number of co-sponsors on the resolution. You should understand that under American Constitution and sustained by 
the Supreme Court decision and subsequent case law that any member of Congress, any single member of Congress, can release anything of a classified nature to the American people, and there's nothing that anybody can do to that person. So here we have a situation where, uh, from the get-go, uh, members of Congress refuse to exercise this constitutional power that they had to release or to stop any classification by the executive, uh, CIA at all, uh, of what was going on. And so we had the chairman, uh, Graham, uh, who pleaded to uh, re release the papers. And then over the years, uh, groups of members of Congress would plead, and now we have a formal resolution asking for the release. Any one member could release these papers, but uh, but the but it did, you understand the difficulty of peer pressure. But now when they get together and they put forth a resolution asking for the declassification, well, uh, fine, I could applaud that. That's an advance. But it's a little ridiculous when any one of them could have released and can still release the 28 pages. Well, I agree. It does seem a little ridiculous. Well, this new resolution, though, it's not just calling for the release. It's uh, uh, supposedly actually citing this uh, speech and debate clause that will, in fact, uh, basically they're, they're giving notice that they're planning to read it into the congressional record. And as you say, why don't they just do it? Yeah, it, that's, that's right. It's a lot of shilly-shallying around. And, uh, and and what it is is, keep in mind, that decision of the Supreme Court was rendered in 1972. And there's not been a single instance of a member of Congress releasing information that the people should know about what their government is doing. Not one single instance since then. Now, I hope that this resolution will be the first example of relying on speech and debate. But you see, the speech and debate is, is fundamental to our democracy. If the, if the elected representatives who, who know what's going on in government cannot share that information with the people in a democracy, then a democracy cannot function because the people cannot give a proper evaluation of uh, public policy that's being undertaken in their name. That's the tragedy is our, our the democracy is devoted, is, is, is destroyed by the will of the con or the lack of will in the Congress to share what they know with their elect constituencies. Well, there, people, uh, of course, would raise objections to you're saying that there are no would be no consequences for any congressman who read the 28 pages into the record or did other kinds of uh, whistleblowing, releasing secret information, given that there's there's pretty good evidence that Paul Wellstone was murdered. As, as Barbara Boxer said, uh, as she said, she said she would deny having said this if it were repeated, uh, that Senator Wellstone's murder was, quote unquote, a message to us all. We have a deep state that relies on this, uh, these layers and layers of secrecy, and that deep state uh, has really let it be known that we're not a democracy anymore. And in that situation, how, how do we get democracy back? Well, first off, you exercise the courage that members of Congress should have. Forget the fact that somebody's been murdered. My God, uh, that happens in war. When you enlist in a service and you go off, you don't know that you're not going to get killed, but you have the patriotism to do that. And so where's the patriotism of the members of Congress uh, uh, in standing up to the deep state that you refer to? Uh, I had, This is secondhand information. I don't know if it's accurate. But uh, Obama once made the statement, apparently, that uh, if he were to treat objectively the military-industrial complex, he probably would end up like Kennedy. Well, that's not a reason. I mean, he's elected president of the United States to lead, and if in the process he is assassinated, then the next person should step up and lead. You see, you don't cower down to oppression. You stand up to oppression and take the risks that are involved. Otherwise, don't run for office. 
I agree completely. Well, that's how I felt about the academy when I was uh, at the University of Wisconsin and found some discrepant information about 9/11 that looked pretty historic to me. I thought the academy was supposed to be the you know honest voice of keeping the the power in check um, and journalism as well. But it, it seems well, like all these institutions are failing us. Well, but journalism is totally copped out. You know, we're mainstream media is six corporations. And they're totally sold out to Wall Street and the military-industrial complex. Wall Street and the military-industrial complex controls the presidency, the Congress, the judiciary. Uh, there is no democracy left. We are just being led around by the nose. And, and so when you see something that takes 20, 30 years, like the 28 pages, to, to surface when the information is it's not all that uh, misunderstood. We Anybody who's followed these events well knows the role that's been played by Saudi Arabia uh, in corrupting and creating the jihad movement worldwide through their madrasas and the, and the, and the, the hatred that they teach young children. This has been going on for years and years. And so there's, uh, you know, there's no secret that's going to be totally disruptive when we know that Saudi Arabia is a bad country. It's our ally. We prefer Saudi Arabia over Iran, and Iran has done nothing on the order of what Saudi Arabia has done. Well, well, that's a great point. But, of course, I would argue that the reason that they're keeping this under wraps is not so much to protect our wonderful ally Saudi Arabia as to protect the deep state actors who work with our wonderful ally Saudi Arabia in precisely creating all of this synthetic terrorism by way of this uh, perverted Wahhabi ideology. It's very convenient for the empire to have the Saudis be the way they are. Yeah, uh, Kevin, I would I would say that uh, fine, your your analysis is correct, but it doesn't go deep enough. Uh, one of the things that's not understood uh, in the American community is that OPEC, OPEC cut a deal with, way back when in 1972 uh, when they quadrupled the price of oil. And the deal that was cut would be the fact that we would, that they would uh, make sure that oil is purchased in dollars. And one of the things that Iran did before the sanctions were laid on them was the fact that they had made a deal with some countries to denominate the oil price in euros. If, if OPEC did not support the dollar under the deal that we have, our economic system would just crumble. It's that serious. And so we can look for uh, marginal uh, deals, but th that's the fundamental deal that we have with OPEC, and and the Saudis control OPEC, and that's why we're paying this horrendous price of creating jihadism around the world uh, for the fact of sustaining the dollar. It gets pretty pretty complex and pretty convoluted, Kevin. Right. Well, as far as the the creating the jihadis around the world, isn't it true though that most of that is uh, ha has imperial benefits as well. It's not just the oil, but also, for example, the Saudi jihadis uh, were on our side. They were freedom fighters against the Russians in Afghanistan. They've been doing all kinds of uh, subversion of Russia ever since. So-called al-Qaeda's main item of business ever since it began has been attacking Russia on behalf of the USA, and they also run drugs for the CIA through Kosovo and so on and so forth. I, I would argue that al-Qaeda, and even more so ISIS, which is completely synthetic, purely the product of the Western intelligence services through Saudi proxies, that these groups are not authentic expressions even of Wahhabi Islam, that these are primarily Western mercenary organizations. I, I would not disagree with that. <laughs> okay. Not in the slightest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been a Muslim since 1993 and, uh, and these, these groups are utter embarrassments. It seems to me they're almost, you know, partly serving a function as a PR move against Islam. I mean, they, look how, look at the Islamophobia that this stuff has created over the past 20 years. What Muslim, what honest Muslim would actually want any of this? And, and right. And, and when you, when you compare Iran to Saudi Arabia, you see that 
because Iran is a theocratic state, of course, no different than is Israel and Saudi Arabia, but it's a theocratic state, but it's not a violent theocratic state. What happens is that they do defend uh, their allies, whether it's Hezbollah or Hamas, uh, and, uh, or allies in, in, uh, Iraq. But, but why there was such a hatred of Iran within the American establishment, I think is all rooted in the hatred of, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, against Iran, because they see Iran as a rising theocratic uh, power that, uh, that can overshadow their power. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would add to that though. It's not so much just the the theocracy as the sort of revolutionary sentiment that the Iranians have somehow managed to combine a kind of a, a nationalistic movement with their revolution, but uh, also a movement there that really cares for justice around the world. So they're always going to be uh, friends and supporters of you know Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and other. Uh, liberation movements around the world, and especially in Palestine, where they're absolutely committed to liberating Palestine. And I, I think that's probably the single biggest problem. That's what I've heard from my Iranian friends, some of whom are very well placed. They all say that, you know, Iran could be the economic powerhouse of the Middle East. All we would have to do is knuckle under and stop uh, supporting the Palestinians, and they would give us what we wanted. So they think the whole problem is really about uh, Israel. Oh, well, there's no question about that. Uh, and of course, Israel is the power that uh, that determines what American Middle East policy uh, will be. It becomes. I mean, they control American Middle Eastern policy, and it's a criminal situation because it's cost untold human lives and untold treasure uh, on behalf of the American people. If the Americans knew how much money we were pouring into Israel, you would see a revolution uh, much larger than the 28 pages in this country. And, and I think if Israel's role in various uh, false flag events were revealed, that would also contribute to the same outcome. Uh, well, how, how are we going to make things better? You know, what, what hope is there for improvement through the electoral system? If it's if it's Hillary versus Trump, I don't see much hope. But their negatives are both record high right now. And we have Gary Johnson, the libertarian, on the ballot in all 50 states and pulling 10 percent plus in the polls. Is this a year that a third party breakthrough could conceivably happen? No, not at all. Uh, and not I know Gary Johnson very, very well. Uh, and, uh, they are not in all 50 states as yet. He's made that representation. Uh, the same representation is made by the Greens that they're working on getting into all 50 states. I think, uh, Dr. Stein with the Greens would be a hell of a lot uh, more acceptable to the American community than would be the Libertarians. And, and I have a lot of friends within the libertarian movement, but I think it is extreme. Gary Johnson's talking about wiping out the IRS, wiping out the Department of Education and Department of Commerce. Well, they, these are ridiculous positions. Plus, he and Weld have, have made statements that just make me wonder where they stand with respect to the military-industrial complex. I would predict that uh, if... If Bernie Sanders, uh, and he's already been uh, solicited by Dr. Stein, if he would join Dr. Stein, he'd be the standard bearer. She would be vice president. And then they would really cut a broad swath. But what would be the results of that? I think that the, nobody would get the necessary votes in the Electoral College in order to win. So you'd have a plurality that would then take the issue to the uh to the House of Representatives, where each state has but one vote. And since Republicans control that, more than likely, uh, they would anoint uh, Ryan, Speaker Ryan, the way they anointed him Speaker, they would anoint him President of the United States, and that would be the outcome of that. Now, so uh, let me repeat, I don't believe that the uh, third parties uh, would would make that much difference other than possibly creating a plurality situation with respect to the electoral votes. Okay. And, and that sounds like it, it wouldn't come out uh, the way that we might hope. 
<laughs> well, they would come out. They would make the Republicans happy because they could get rid of Trump and they could get what uh, a what, quote, and I use quote, a reasonable person like uh, Paul Ryan, who's not so reasonable, but they think he's reasonable. Uh, and that, and that's my take on it. the the problem is that uh, Bernie Sanders is right now in a in a catbird seat. He could decide, uh, and he's already apparently decided that he's going to try to keep his movement alive. I think it's a fool's errand. There's no way you can keep a broad movement alive just on the basis of protest, because we have examples of the failure of movements throughout our history and recent history. And so his view that he could do this is really begs the, begs the question. The answer is, what, what is the revolution he's talking about? He and so many others don't, don't know how to put their finger on it. What is the revolution? There's only one possible thing. There's only two venues for change. One is uh, the government, wherein lies the problem, and the other is the people who do not have the power to uh, use their power other than to give it away on election day to representatives. And so the answer is obvious. We have to bring about the people of the United States becoming lawmakers so that if they want to pursue an agenda like Bernie's, and I'm, I'm telling you, in a heartbeat, the American public would vote for single payer. They've wanted it from the get-go, and they've been denied that by the Congress. And uh, Citizens United, they would vote in a heartbeat to take the corruption of money out of the political process. That's just the beginning. And so the answer is very simple. Empower the people to make laws. I've submitted a proposal to Bernie because I've worked on over the last 25 years a, a process of how to do this. And we could do this by going around the government entirely. We don't have to have the government to hold an election. In fact, the government would never, never have an election to empower the people to make laws because it would dilute the power of the 1%. And so what we have to do is to have a, a constitutional amendment wherein the people assert their sovereignty to be able to be legislators and that where they would assert, like in Article 7, of the Constitution that created our government, they would assert the sanction of the election being conducted by a private entity, and then would assert the standard for the enactment of that legislation, and then it would also, in another section, create a uh, an electoral trust uh, that it would, it would then manage the procedures on behalf of the people, the legislative procedures, just like in the, in the Senate. In fact, what I did is I copied the Senate procedures in this process. And then you would turn around and, and in, the, in the Constitutional Amendment also outlaw all monies that do not come from a natural person. Uh, so that, that's what the people could do. And the, and the standard for enactment would be the only standard we have for a national election, which is the election of a president. So the majority of the people who voted in the last most recent presidential election, if the people were to vote for this constitutional amendment, it becomes the law of the land, period. That, that's what's possible. But the, the difficulty that I've had over the last few decades, I have not been able to get a single, a single representative in government to buy into what I'm talking about. And much less the pundits. Well, you're talking about putting them out of a job. <laughs> That's right. That, well, you, you don't put them out of a job. You dilute their power because the people would make laws in a parallel capacity as the representatives make laws. But the people would be the senior partners in that process. So, no, it dilutes their power. Uh, I'm not I'm not of a mood to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I just think that – and in the legislation I put forward – it does not does not change anything in representative government other than requiring representative government in the various legislative bodies to vote in an advisory capacity on initiatives in their relevant jurisdictions. So that that's what I put forward. Uh, since you can't get the body politic to buy into it, you can't get the the pundits, mainstream media, to even understand it. Uh, and then when you get a person like Bernie, 
who's, who could at this very point in time turn his power and his, his supporters into going out and getting this initiative, the National Citizens Initiative, enacted into law. They have the capacity in numbers to do this, to raise the money to do this, and, and that opportunity will be dissipated because after the November election, Bernie's going to be sidelined. I promise you that. And his efforts to keep a body uh, uh, active, it's just not going to happen. It hasn't happened before. You, they all turn down to small little lobbying groups of the committed. But as far as the great unwashed, they, they go on to the rest of their lives. You know, that's a great point. You know, Bernie's slogan of, you know, his, his revolution actually would, it would make sense to morph that into the kind of movement for direct democracy that you're talking about. That would actually make it in a sense a real revolution because right now it's kind of a, it's, it's a nebulous concept what he's, what he's talking about and it, it could actually take on some concrete form if he jumped on board with your program. That's right. And I've, and I've communicated that is to him twice and I've never got an answer. Mm-hmm. And all I conclude is that he doesn't understand what his own revolution is all about. Yeah. Because the revolution is, is not passing a piece of legislation. The revolution is empowering the people in every government jurisdiction of the United States to be able to make laws by initiative. That's the revolution. And then they could turn around and do their agenda, not just his agenda, but the agenda of the people who want to vote in the majoritarian fashion on these various issues. But they can't do that now. They're not permitted to do that. All they can do under our structure of representative government, which, of course, keeps people in civic adolescence, but all they can do is vote on election day to give their power away. And I'm reminded of a great statement by uh, by Mark Twain, and that is, if voting was able to do anything, they wouldn't let us do it. <laughs> right, which is probably why they don't. <laughs> uh, That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. We're controlled by the 1%. And they're not about to let this happen, but and and so you can't you can't solve any of this within the context of representative government. Very simply, representative government is controlled by the one percent, the military-industrial complex, and Wall Street. And so, if if you can't do it within uh, the confines of representative government, then you begin to ask why the foolishness of all of these progressive pundits and liberals insisting that we solve the problem within the context of representative government. Well, you know, my friend Robert David Steele, with whom I'm working on a new book on the Orlando events, he's a a former CIA clandestine services officer who's become a top Amazon reviewer and a a leading voice of reform. He has a whole program for electoral reform that actually I think should incorporate your ideas. But in any case, he, he thinks that Bernie Sanders is really not the real deal. He thinks that the idea all along was for Bernie to probably lose and then throw his support to Hillary. He doesn't have faith in Bernie Sanders really being the truly independent voice that he pretends to be. Well, I, and I, I am hoping that he's wrong, and I'll continue hoping until after the convention. And people can change. You know? but, if Bernie, but if Bernie endorses Hillary, forget it. Uh, it's just uh, it's just business as usual. Yeah, and I'm kind of afraid that's the most likely outcome. Well, speaking of of uh, Robert David Steele and the Orlando Book Project, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the couple last couple of books I've had out in the last year and a half. First one was "We Are Not Charlie Hebdo" about the attacks in Paris in January. Well, I agree with that. I agree. Je ne suis pas. Vous n'êtes pas Charlie, moi non plus. And then uh, the follow-up book uh, called "Another French False Flag" about the events of November of last year. In both cases, we managed to round up a lot of leading public intellectuals who the majority of whom, the great majority of whom actually are skeptical of the official stories of what actually happened in those cases. Most of us are now agreed that there's an Operation Gladio B going on post 9-11 that's been responsible for the majority, if not all, of the high-profile alleged Islamic terror attacks in the West, uh, beginning with 9-11, actually before 9-11 perhaps uh, even, and uh, continuing on. Um, and I, I was wondering if you might perhaps be interested in writing a, a brief introduction or a, even a blurb uh, for this book, given that skepticism 
about uh, the deep state seems to be growing, and that actually could lead to the kinds of big changes that you are, are working for. Well, fine. I, I would buy into those ideas, but it's, it's as you point out, I'm really, really uh, thirsting to get people to support this idea that the answer is to have people become lawmakers. So I'd be happy to forward to you the document that I've sent to Bernie uh, and uh, and see if you couldn't include, uh, and I could send you a copy of the National Citizens Initiative. Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've actually seen those things, and I do support those things. Uh, what you know, you could do is just a very brief introduction, saying that you know we need to have this kind of debate about these events, uh, and if indeed they turn out to be what we we think they may be, that that could lead to a rethinking of government, and the best way to way out of that would be uh, re-empowerment of the people, something along those lines. Well, I I, I must say maybe maybe I'm, I'm I'm too and I'm not cynical because I'm an optimist, but um, I don't see. Uh, since the, see here, here's the problem. Since mainstream media is controlled by the 1%, since Wall Street's controlled by the 1%, which means the whole banking empire and the corruption in our monetary economic system, uh, and, and since the government in all, all three departments are controlled by the 1%, I don't know of any way to make a breakthrough un, uh, unless you see a situation like this that exists with Bernie where you have uh, you have young people alerted and ready to go, but no place to go other than representative government, and that will dis- and they'll and that nothing will happen because you see they're 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 focusing on protest, they're focusing on as as elements that you're talking about focusing upon trying to get the government to do something. I've just come to the conclusion that there's, that's impossible to happen under the structure. And it's not just that this is current. I mean, this was laid out in the Constitution of the United States from the get-go. The people were denied the power to be able to change their government. And, and, and if you look at, you'll see the paper I send you, uh, we'll have all of these quotes from Washington, Jefferson, Madison, uh, and uh, another one uh, saying that the people should be able to change government. Problem is that they never gave the people the procedures to do it in the Constitution. They did give the procedures to representative government to change the Constitution, but not the people. So from the get-go, we and of course we've paid a price for it: slavery, the uh, genocide of our indigenous people, uh, civil war, and wars of imperialism. That that's that's really where we're at, and so I I just don't have the stomach, uh, Kevin, to to turn around and say, well, I just hope the people will do this. The people have been acculturated. God, there's a great quote that I have from. Uh, I get my hands on it uh, uh, from Yutichenko. Uh, uh, damn it all! I can't find it. Uh, well, maybe we can pull it up and uh, post it on the radio blog introducing the show. Uh, well, you know, I think you, you were just going to do a half hour, right? Uh, Whatever you want. Oh, okay. Well, we have, we've come to the end of the pre-planned half hour. But if you want to continue, that would be great. Uh, sure, whatever you okay, want. Okay, let's yeah, let's go let's let's go a little longer then. Let's make it a full hour. Um, okay. Well, you've been involved with the 9/11 Truth Movement, I believe, in part because you recognize that this kind of uh, this kind of issue has such profound psychological consequences in terms of possibly undermining people's attachment to the current form of government. Uh, that you know, in the event that we learned, for example, that our own leaders were complicit in the events of 9-11. They were. I I, I think there's no question in my mind that 9-11 was an inside job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, and why is it so unusual? My God, they killed millions and millions of people. Is it a big deal for them to kill 3,000? Here, we we killed 58,000 American servicemen in the Vietnam War, and all they did was die in vain. And so... What's so unusual about killing three three thousand more in order <clears throat> to develop the grist for the mill to to empower uh, 
into infinity the funding of the military-industrial complex. Let, let me read you this quote. That uh, This is from uh, Yevtichenko. Uh, poem, and I'm just talking, taking about the, the bottom part of it. Uh, the Americans, do they want war? The line below could be added to God Bless America, to be sung at sporting events as U.S. fighter planes do their flyovers, and our warriors are saluted by the civilian public, which is called upon to glorify and pretend to support them by bestowing our national treasure upon the DOD and the military-industrial complex, which we've called upon to enrich beyond imagination. Wow. <laughs> Does that not say it all? Oh, yeah. And, and well, and of course, that is the, the big force that's, that's trashed our democracy. But, you know, as I was suggesting, it seems to me that they went, you know, they went so far overboard on 9-11 and these follow-up events. And I'm, I'm convinced that most of these high profile terror events since then have also been uh, essentially inside jobs. The, the truth about this could, I believe, turn things around, but it has to come out in a kind of a, a, a quicker and more shocking well, way, not just slowly where, leaking out yeah, like the way it is. Go. Where will the truth go? Well, the, the people, first off, mainstream media would touch this with a 10 foot pole. And uh, so there's no way to get it out other than through the Internet. And there's a lot of wonderful stuff going out there. But still, that the whole Internet communication system is, is under question. We don't know how this thing is going to resolve itself in the next 50 to 100 years. But we do know that since the founding of our country, uh, our democracy has been controlled by the 1% by design. And the representative democracies around the world are similarly controlled by their 1%. So we are stuck. Unless we have a, a device that would be legally accepted, uh, and, and here, here's where the rubber hits the road. When I talk about people voting directly for the, the National Citizens Initiative to empower themselves to make laws, well, of course, what would happen is that the uh, somebody would sue the Congress and say, well, you can't, as directed in this legislation, you cannot uh, appropriate the money for the functioning of this legislature of the people. Well, that issue would go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uh, would not be able to do anything but other kick it back and say, this is a political issue that has to be resolved between the Congress and the people. So now you do have a situation where you have secured 70 to 80, maybe even 90 million people who have voted to empower themselves to make laws. And in the process of doing that, you really educate and persuade them that their vote is valid and that they should stand behind it. Now you have a situation where the people could take the streets, a la Bernie Sanders, and, and really effect a change. But but until we can get to that situation where we have educated, independent of representative government, the constituency of the nation on the order of 70, 80,000 voters, uh, I, I don't see where, and, and it's really unfortunate because I find myself in a cul-de-sac. Uh, I, I, I know it's important to elect decent people to public office. I know it's important to try and educate the people, but I, but I know historically, I've not seen this happen, the results of it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the good effects of the kind of program that you're advocating, I think, would be that the laws would become much more straightforward and understandable. They would have to be for people to be able to vote on them. Uh, currently, they're all written by, by lawyer specialists in these electoral bodies, and they're full of gibberish. They have to be interpreted by uh, people specially trained in legalese. And I think that's, that's well, right now, how can any individual know how they're, how to obey laws? Because we can't understand the laws. If the people voted on the laws, they would have to be written in plain English. Of course. And, and the, in the Legislative Procedures Act that accompanies the Constitutional Amendment, we have very specific uh, dictum, and that is that it, a, a, a initiative can only be one subject. It can't be any longer than 5,000 words. 
Uh, <laughs> just, just those two things. But even, even, even then, that would be, it would be tough to read all the legislation. But, of course, today the representatives don't read even a fraction of the legislation because they're too busy raising money. Well, but, but here again, the National Citizens Initiative, the Legislative Procedures Act, would dictate that you can only have uh, uh, federal laws, 52 federal laws a year, because you're going to be able to vote on your initiative over a week's time in 724s. And you can be on vacation in Paris and be able to vote. You are registered for life under our process. So there's no, there's no problem. And all of the elections are conducted by the Citizens Trust. So you begin to see that we have, we have covered every one of those bases that need to be covered if we're going to make these, uh, the process deliberative. So raise another question, and I'll tell you how we've addressed that. Problem. Okay. Well, well, they they got you know they they have a lot of initiatives in certain states like California. How did the legislators in California ever get persuaded to allow that to happen? Well, first off, they they got persuaded by Hiram Johnson uh, before the First World War, uh, and now th- this is the point I try to make with Bernie that we're not the first people that brought in this concept. It was the progressives at the turn of the uh, the 20th century that brought in the concept that the people should, and they copied Switzerland. They copied Switzerland and put into place about 23 states where they have the ability to make laws. The problem is when they copied Switzerland, they copied the flaws of the Swiss approach. And that is that the uh, people making laws are embedded in the structure of representative government. And obviously, you see this throughout the United States, that these representatives are continually sabotaging the process whereby the people make laws because they control representative government. And so what I've set up, and the essence of the whole uh, situation that I've set up, is that we create an electoral trust and a, a body that serves the legislature of the people in in uh, handling uh, their procedures, so in behalf of the people, and they conduct these elections uh, in behalf of the people, and so that so little wonder that we have all these initiative states that are screwed up because they have the same flaw that Switzerland had is that they embedded it, and it, this is not to denigrate on them; they made a great progressive move forward. But you have to understand where the flaws are and and correct them. And that's what I've done in this legislation. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, this you know leads me to some you know broad philosophical thoughts about how there's a school of thought out there that says, well, the people, of course, are are not mature enough uh, for these sorts of things. And uh, one of the areas where we hear this is in the the area of the so-called you know UFO disclosure movement. I've spoken with people at Veterans Today who were veterans of the intelligence community who tell me quite seriously, it seems, that there is a huge cover-up going on of something big is happening with that issue of UFO disclosure. And they say that among the reasons that this is all covered up, and there's apparently, according to some at least, there's been a pretty uh, massive uh, disinformation campaign around this issue, is that whatever the truth is, uh, it's something that ordinary people just couldn't handle. And then that notion that ordinary people just can't handle the truth, just can't handle responsibility, seems to be very, very widespread and institutionalized. I mean, the neocons have taken it to the next level, of course, with their notion of you know, the, the, the great Nietzschean Superman, which is themselves, has to feed lies or public myths to the masses to keep them in line. Um, so just using that example of the, the disclosure movement, uh, do you think that if people were empowered to write legislation, they would vote to learn the truth about whatever's really going on? Obviously would. And, of course, the procedures that I put in place would do that to a fairly well. Uh, I'm, I'm part of the intelligence group that you're talking about. Uh, I was, when I was 23 years old, I was a top secret control officer and the adjutant of the communications intelligence service in Europe. So that was 23, 24 years old. Uh, so no, uh, they, their, their, their movement and primarily Ray McGovern, who does most of their writing, is just excellent on this, on this subject. Uh, and, but here, here too, 
we're stuck within the confines of representative government. And, and as long as the, the solutions must be effected within the confines of representative government, they won't be effective. But, but wait a minute. Let, let me object to there. I'm not sure it's, it's the representative government that's the problem because we're told that in at least two cases, two presidents, that would be Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, both came into office, um, essentially put out an order that they wanted to, to get the dossier about what was really happening with the UFO issue. And in both cases, we're told that you don't have the necessary clearance. So, so if the president of the United States doesn't have the necessary clearance, uh, this isn't representative democracy that's the problem. It's that the, there's a deep state that doesn't care about any kind of democracy. Well, first off, that's BS, truthfully, Kevin. Uh, and I'm familiar with uh, Carter's uh, presidency since that's when I was in office. Uh, and, and Carter was great up to a point. In fact, he's been a better former president than he was a president. Absolutely. And so he, he copped out to the military industrial complex at the right time. And of course, Clinton was the poster boy for Wall Street, as demonstrated by the repeal of Glass-Steagall and a whole host of other changes. Uh, and, and he too, you know, never met a war that he didn't want to be part of. Right, but they both supposedly did, uh, essentially said they, they, who was it? Carter sent one of his aides, was it Webb Hubble or something, to, uh, the military and CIA saying that, you know, Carter wants the briefing on, on UFOs. And basically he was stonewalled. And then I think the same, something very similar happened with Clinton. So whether or not they're sellouts, uh, both of them did want to find out about UFOs and both of them were supposedly turned down. Does it surprise you that uh, politicians may not always tell the truth? <laughs> well, yeah, and especially with this issue. You know, with 9-11, it's pretty easy to figure out the broad strokes of what really happened. But with this UFO issue, it's not. It's clear there's some kind of cover-up going on. But well, they, how it works. You know, here, I, I obviously have been involved with this issue to a degree. Uh, my my uh, addressing it is very straightforward and very simple that it would be the height of human arrogance to think that we are the only sentient beings in the cosmos. So, you know, w what the details are that uh, that you don't want to bother as president, you got to keep in mind that a president is just one person, one mind. And, and unless he wants to be able to really be a bull in a china shop, uh, then uh, not that much is going to happen. But then a bull in the china shop, they'll shoot him and put him out of his misery. You know, <laughs> when yeah. Jack Kennedy uh, made the speech uh, at the American University, uh, really turning away from the whole concept of war and the military industrial complex, he was assassinated shortly thereafter. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the, the, here, when you take uh, when you want to know how dangerous this is, when you take the Iraq invasion, you know, at one point we had more private contractors uh, like Blackwater uh, operating in uh, Iraq than we had uniformed personnel. Now, all of these private contractors, you know, that they're paid to go assassinate, to kill people. That's their job. They've been trained by our military to do that. And so now... When, when you try to say, well, we're going to cut this out, uh, how, how do you think people react when they're making over $100,000 a year uh, and all of a sudden they're going to lose the contract and they're back going out and getting on welfare or getting a decent job? How are they going to react? Some of them will, will, will really flip and will, will assassinate the first person who's pushing that policy. That's the reason why, unfortunately, Politicians get elected and they become cowards shortly thereafter <laughs> right. because they're just afraid. And, and what I was saying earlier is, you know, we're so proud of the, you know, the military and it's so, so part of our culture. Well, when you join the military, uh, I, when I did, you, you know, during the Korean War, uh, I could have just as easily been, I was a combat infantry platoon leader. I could have just as easily been sent to Korea as sent to Europe, and there, but for the grace of God, I was sent to Europe. But had I sent to Korea, what's more expendable than a second lieutenant in a in an infantry platoon? I don't know of anything more expendable than that. So you've got to be able to say to yourself, if you're 
truly a patriot, am I prepared to die for what is right? And if you're not, then get the hell out of the kitchen. This is my approach. You're here. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, well, you were mentioning the, the private security complex and stuff. It, it seems that 9-11 really uh, sent this stuff out of control, even more than it was before that. Of course, Cheney and Rumsfeld have been involved in privatizing the military before 9-11. But then, you know, post 9-11, now it's, uh, you know, G4S, for example, the employer of this Omar Mateen guy who's being blamed for the shooting in Florida. Uh, they're supposedly bigger than the British military. And speaking of that uh, shooting in Florida and these weird connections, uh, you know, it seems that Omar Martini was he was the FBI was all over him for a whole year. Uh, his dad works for the CIA and he was employed by G4S, one of the world's biggest mercenary outfits. And uh, think, these kinds of connections, as well as other implausibilities with the story, such as this guy who was supposedly just a security guard killing 50 people with only a semi-automatic rifle, wounding 50 others. Uh, the the kill-to-wounded ratio is, is very unusual. The ability to pull that off as one person uh, is unusual in a club with eight exits. Uh, all, all of this has many of us very suspicious about this. Do you think that the security industrial complex could be manufacturing these episodes uh, both to keep the post-9-11 so-called war on terror going and uh, to keep themselves with lots of business. Very much so. In fact, what you have to equate it with is that 9-11, what it really did was to set up the war on terror, which is a war into infinity. You know, wars are designed to be fought and won or lost and ended, and then you go through a period of peace. But that's not what's going on with the war on terror, because terror is a tactic. It's it's not a, a set army plan. It's a tactic that people use. And so what we've done, what 9-11 did, was to create such fear in the American public that it would accept any abridgment of its freedoms, which, of course, took place in the Congress wholesale with the passage of the Patriot Act and several other legislation, which just empowered, accelerated, accelerated the power the military-industrial complex had over our democracy. And so when you look at, uh, if you, and of course, when you look back at the writings of Wolfowitz, Cheney, and all that cabal, uh, writing a letter to to uh, uh, Bill Clinton asking him to invade uh, Iraq and that that's where the problems lie. Uh, then all of a sudden uh, they uh, and they and they kept equating it that what we need is something like a a Pearl Harbor that would that would take overnight the American populace. Uh, that was uh, isolationist and overnight uh, make it uh, want to go to war and destroy the enemy. And so that's the effect of 9-11. It was overnight. It caused Americans to turn around and surrender all their freedoms and all the processes to protect them. And this was all done by the Congress now. This was done by intelligent people who know better. And so they they did this, and now we're stuck with a war. Here, Obama has been president for almost eight years. He's the only president that we've had that was at war for all eight years of his presidency. That's Obama, who started out by getting a peace, the Nobel Peace Award. I mean, th this thing is George Orwellian uh, to a fairly well. You know, he's the peace Nobel laureate. And, uh, and all he does is go to war, and he invents a new war process, which, of course, is the drone, expands the drones that were developed under Bush. So, so in answer to your question, yes, there's, there's no question in my mind that the 9-11 uh, took place in order to radicalize the views and the fears of Americans so that they would accept any abridgment of their democracy in order to sustain the profit motives, the profit motives of the military-industrial complex and Wall Street. And it appeared there was a, a little problem with Congress after 9-11, and the anthrax incident may have solved it. I don't know, are you familiar with Graham McQueen's book on the anthrax 
Attack. No, I'm not familiar with his book, but I'm somewhat knowledgeable about the anthrax situation. But, uh, you, think, but you think it was a coincidence that they just happened to target the guys who were blocking the Patriot Act? Not only that, it was. Uh, it, you think it was a coincidence that the anthrax was from American military installation rather than from some some other installation? <laughs> right. Well, well, this is where McQueen's book is really interesting because it appears that the original plan. Uh, of the joint 9-11 anthrax attacks, which clearly were part of the, the same thing, uh, was to blame the uh, blame Saddam Hussein uh, and al-Qaeda for both events. And they sheep-dipped the 9-11 hijackers, the alleged hijackers, in anthrax prior to 9-11. They had some of those hijackers, I think, get treated for anthrax exposure prior to 9-11. And the idea was to then say that these guys had been working with Saddam Hussein. They'd gotten Saddam Hussein's anthrax. And uh, the, so, therefore, the same group that carried out 9-11 also carried out the anthrax attacks. The only problem was that somebody in the FBI didn't get the memo. And so they blew the whistle on the fact that the anthrax was this ultra-weaponized stuff that was clearly made by our own uh, germ warfare department. It was obviously Amerithrax, as the FBI put put it in naming the investigation. So that blew the whole thing. And so now they were left with having these alleged 9-11 hijackers been sheep-dipped in anthrax, which essentially proves that the same people did 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, and both of them were in the American government. The one, one thing, Kevin, is uh, when you point out this book that goes into details, the literature, <clears throat> the literature on this uh, subject is awesome. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of research and have the facts. I mean, you, you can't, one of the great benefits of our phony democracy is that it leaks like a sieve. And, uh, and thank God it does. And so people who are prepared to, uh, what brings to mind is, is Gareth Porter, who I know very well, is such an accomplished investigative journalist. Uh, what's his name with the intercept? Uh, Lynn Greenwald. The Greenwald. Yeah. You know, they're out there. They're doing the work, but it's not carried by mainstream media. And so Americans by and large, are brainwashed by mainstream media, and then these other things, they're, they're just uh, pointed to, oh, well, that, uh, these are a bunch of crazies. They're conspiracy nuts. So wait a minute. What, what, Porter and Greenwald won't go the distance on 9-11 and anthrax and all of that. Well, why do you think they're shy of those issues? Well, I, I don't think that they're shy. I think that they're, they're, there's limits of time as to what a person can do. I'll give you my, my situation. You know, I don't go into all these areas uh, for the very simple reason that I have one focus of attention, and that is, rep, uh, that is to empower people uh, to make laws in, in our system of government. And so I focus all my energies on that. And so... When you say, well, you know, why don't they go into that? They they may have their own agenda, and clearly Greenwald does. You know, he runs the Intercept. He uh, he he not only fights the battles in the United States, he fights the battles going on in Brazil. And my God, that's a, that's that's an undertaking in itself. So I don't think it's fair when you get here. It's like Noam Chomsky. People say, well, why doesn't Noam Chomsky do more? Well. My God, the guy has written a skinny number of books. He's he's elderly like I am, and uh, and yeah, but, but but you're honest about 9/11. Chomsky is dishonest. He's actually done everything he can to undermine the truth movement. And you you well, you know you're, you're the exact opposite of Chomsky. I don't know what he's done in that regard. Okay, at, at all. And he he may. No, have. it's a long story. We'll we'll skip that. <laughs> but, but yeah, let's, let's skip that. But uh, you know, but here again, uh, Chomsky is just one person. And they do good work. Uh, here, Snowden is, has done great work for society. And, uh, and people say, well, why can't he do more? Well, hell, first thing he's got to do is fight to keep himself out of jail. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think you're right, and I think that's actually why most of these people are, you know, they, they won't do 9-11, because they're, they're doing something else, and it would interfere with what they are doing, and in some cases, I think that's legitimate, as long as they don't get in our way, uh, those of us who are actually pursuing the, the biggest issues. Well, uh, Senator Mike Gravel, I think we've hit the end of the hour. But I already, already. Yeah, it went fast, didn't it? Time flies when you're having fun, huh? Yeah, you know, it's it's you're one of the best people uh, to talk to, actually. I, I wish I could check in with you more often, and I, I really appreciate your your work on trying to 
help force people to mature and take control of their own lives through direct democracy. It's, it's a really and the only way to do that is to empower them to make laws so they can take responsibility for public policy. Right now, what they do is they just defer to George Bill, whatever, and uh, you know something goes wrong, while well, we blame our politicians. Well, if if the people were in power, then there's nobody you blame but yourself. And but the people would make mistakes, and of course they correct them. Politicians, when they make mistakes, don't correct them because it would cause their diselection in the next uh, political round. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Senator Mike Gravel. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to another conversation before too long. Okay, thank you very much. All right, take care.